Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, my new show that brings a rational perspective to important issues facing society today. Today is a special presentation. I'm going to talk about the data on the pandemic and how to restore trust and repair some of the damage that was done. Thanks for joining us. I'll talk about the pandemic uh, in some detail, uh, really exposing the data that we all must understand very clearly, or we cannot repair the serious damage that's been done by the management of the pandemic. I've entitled the talk, A Pandemic of Failed Leadership, Will Trust Return? But we could easily say, will a free and ethical society return? Huxley said, facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. America's in serious crisis. There's been an unprecedented denial of fact, rampant now on our university campuses, in the media, in science, and in public health leadership. America's credentialed class, our expert class leading our essential institutions, has been exposed as non-expert, politicized, and in many ways, ethically deficient. As a society, we broke the social contract with our most precious resource, our children, harming them and failing as role models. And fundamentally, to any democracy and free society is the free exchange of ideas. That is under threat in the United States. The history is clear. What was claimed in 2020, that the SARS-2 virus had a far higher fatality rate than the flu by several orders of magnitude, that everyone has a significant risk to die, that no one has immunity because the virus was new, that everyone is dangerous and spreads the infection, that asymptomatic people are major drivers of the spread, that locking down will stop and eliminate the virus, that masks protect everyone and stop the spread, and that immune protection is only from a vaccine. These claims were false. And importantly, known to be false by spring of 2020. The U.S. enacted lockdowns. And we call that the Burks-Fauci lockdowns after the initial uh, policy of 15 days to slow the spread. The 15 days to slow the spread made sense because the point was to stop hospitals from being overwhelmed with COVID patients. So if the spread could be slowed, there would be a retained capability to treat the patients as well as mobilize resources and treat other patients with very serious illnesses. So there was a rationality to the initial policy. That changed rapidly, and that changed because of the advice of the leaders of the federal policy in 2020. And those leaders were Deborah Birx, who was the White House Task Force Coordinator under President Trump. She wrote all of the official White House guidance to every governor in the state. She visited most states with or without the vice president. She was in charge of the federal policy guidance to the states. Anthony Fauci was the most visible member of the task force in 2020. He was the public face. He was the conveyor of messages to the public. And when President Biden was uh, inaugurated, he, uh, Dr. Fauci, was named chief medical advisor. The policy guidance of Burks and Fauci throughout 2020 and beyond was first flatten the curve, but then rather immediately stop all cases of COVID. And how was that done? Their guidance was to implement lockdowns. And lockdowns meant school closures, business shutdowns, limits on medical care, and a host of restrictions, mandates, and quarantines. And under first the Trump administration and then the Biden administration, almost all states implemented the Burks-Fauci guidance, 
the lockdowns were implemented and their policy failed. More than a million American deaths were attributed to the virus and the lockdown policy itself, beyond failing to stop the dying, caused death and destruction, massive death and severe harm to millions of families and children, particularly the working class and the poor. There was a dramatic shift of the burden of the disease from the affluent to low-income families and children. This is the data from our world and data, the cumulative COVID deaths per million people of the United States compared to peer nations under the Burks-Fauci policies of the Trump administration, and then after the inauguration of President Biden under the Fauci policies of the Biden administration. And we see that the United States actually did worse in COVID deaths per million than all of our peer nations. That's two administrations, COVID deaths per million. Not political, not different in the two administrations. And in fact, when we look at the line, that's a, that slope of that line is straight. That means there was no change in the deaths per million even after the vaccinations began in mid-December of 2020. Two administrations, equal slope of frequency of death from COVID per million over the pandemic. We can say the lockdowners and the academic experts who recommended them own these outcomes. Why? Because their policies were implemented. Their policies failed, killing and harming millions. We must ask, where is their acknowledgement of their failure? Remember, lockdowns were not previously recommended. This is not known to the public. But the standard mitigation measures for viral pandemics were published in 2006, 15 years before this pandemic, in the classic article by Henderson and colleagues. And in that article, the authors said the standard man, uh, pandemic management included requesting that all who are ill remain isolated at home or in the hospital, but others should continue to come to work. They said closing schools for longer than 10 to 14 days at the beginning of an epidemic in the hopes of mitigating the epidemic by decreasing contacts among students is not warranted. They said canceling or postponing large meetings would not have any significant effect. They said there is no basis for recommending quarantine, either of groups or individuals. And they said screening passengers at borders or closing air or rail hubs. Experience has shown that these actions are not effective. They are not recommended. That's the standard pandemic management 15 years before this pandemic. And that was violated. Lockdowns were, were known to be ineffective as well as extremely harmful. The fact is that lockdowns were the reckless, unethical, and non-standard pandemic policy. Targeted protection, increasing protection of the elderly and the, and the vulnerable, and stopping the harms of everyone else was indeed known to be safer, ethical, and in fact, the standard pandemic policy before this pandemic. The safer alternative was publicly voiced in spring of 2020, and we called it targeted protection. In March of 2020, three national publications were written, one by John Ioannidis of Stanford, one by David Katz in the New York Times, and one by myself in the Washington Times in March of 2020. Martin Koldorf, Harvard Epidemiology, couldn't get his paper published in the United States, and so he wrote it in CNN Español in, uh, later. Several others in the spring, summer, and fall of 2020 joined in on the idea of targeted protection, which meant increasing the protection of the high-risk group with an unprecedented focus, reopening society to stop destroying low-risk people and children, and that meant reopening medical care, schools, businesses, and transportations, and monitor hospitals. Seven months later, 
a very important document was written, the Great Barrington Declaration, which gave people something written by expert epidemiologists from Stanford, Harvard, and Oxford that they could agree with. And that's the most important part of the Great Barrington Declaration. It, it codified something that people could say, yes, I agree. The problem was that academics and government officials pushed two lies on the public. First, they said, if you're against lockdowns, you're choosing the economy over lives. That was a lie that was known from decades of economics literature, that severe economic downturns kill people. So it was really a choice of lives versus lives. The second lie pushed on the public was, if you are against lockdown, somehow you're for allowing the infection to spread without any mitigation, the so-called herd immunity strategy. No one that I know of advocated to let the infection spread without mitigation. That is not what targeted protection meant. Targeted protection meant increasing the protection of the most vulnerable people that were dying under the Burks-Fauci strategy. That's called propaganda. When you lie to the public to sway their opinion repeatedly over and over again, you can convince the public uh, of, the, of these lies, and this was done to vilify, to demonize people who spoke out against the lockdowns. What's the risk and for whom? This was known since the earliest days of the pandemic in the spring of 2020 and proven subsequently by many published papers. The original World Health Organization estimated an extraordinarily high fatality rate of 3.4%. The problem was that that's a fraction of how many people would die divided by how many people were infected, but they only included in the bottom of the fraction, the denominator, the people that were so sick they sought medical attention, whereas we know in most viral illnesses, including this one, there was a huge number of people that were infected and not sick enough to seek medical attention. So the infection fatality rate was grossly wrong and known to be so by March of 2020. The truth, which was published several uh, in several documents later in the year and subsequently, showed that the infection fatality rate, if you're under 70, was on the order of magnitude of influenza. Age is the most important risk factor for COVID death. 80% of deaths occurred in people that were over 65. And this age stratification has been proven time and time again, including in the most recent study of January 2023 by the group from Stanford, who reviewed the data from the virus of 2020, when the virus was in its most lethal form and in pre-vaccine era. And we see from that data the extraordinarily low infection fatality rate of people who are under 60 on the order of or even less than influenza. And yes, a much higher risk for people that were elderly. Interestingly, the infection fatality rate in the chart on the lower right uh, was much higher in high-income countries than in low-income countries, whether it's for young people or old people. That could be due to differences in risk factors of the population. That age gradient of fatality risk was known since the earliest days of the pandemic, from the spring 2020 onward, where the infection fatality rate was thousands fold lower in people under 20 compared to the elderly. And for clinical perspective, which was never shown to the public, the average age of death from COVID in most countries was older than the life expectancy. That's not to minimize the fact that people died from COVID. But that's a clinical perspective that is very important. It turns out that about two-thirds of COVID deaths occurred in people who were older than life expectancy. That's published data of the world's literature. The other interesting point to understand is it's not simply age that puts you at high risk. High risk means age and condition 
frail elderly were the people who died in general from COVID. We see from the United States data that about two-thirds of deaths were in people who had greater than or equal to six underlying illnesses. Two-thirds of deaths greater than or equal to six comorbidities. Now let's talk about lockdowns. Lockdowns have a certain meaning. And lockdowns were actually implemented. Why do we say that? Because lockdowns mean closing schools and businesses, limiting medical care for non-COVID illnesses, limiting group and family interactions, restricting personal movement and travel, implementing curfews, and quarantining low-risk asymptomatic people. That's lockdowns. They were implemented throughout almost the entire United States. And the fact is, there's data to show the lockdowns failed. Why do we say that? This is Bjornskov, March 2021, reviewing 24 European countries who did lockdowns. And the findings in the paper suggest, quote, more severe lockdown policies have not been associated with lower mortality. Lockdowns have not worked as intended, unquote. Ben David and colleagues at Stanford, January 21. We do not find significant benefits on case growth of the severe lockdowns. They failed to stop the death, but they also failed to stop the increase in cases. This is Agarwal, USC and the Rand Institute, June 2021 analyzing lockdown policies in 43 countries and in the United States, lockdowns led to increase in death. Increased excess death, meaning deaths above and beyond what you would expect in a non-pandemic year. In fact, with longer and shelter-in-place orders, the deaths increased. With earlier onset of lockdowns, the deaths increased. And in fact, the excess deaths were falling before the lockdowns in the United States, but once the lockdowns were instituted, the death toll began rising. Herbie and the Johns Hopkins Group, January 2022, in a meta-analysis said, lockdowns have had little to no effect on COVID mortality and, quote, lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. Kirpin and colleagues from University of Chicago, April 2022, analyzed 50 states and quantified by mortality, economic impact, and educational loss, the impact of the lockdowns. And what their study showed in April 2022 was that the states that did the best included the states that opened early, specifically including South Dakota and Florida, whereas the states that did the worst Illinois, California, New Mexico, New York, Washington, D.C., and New Jersey. They did the worst, and those were the most stringent lockdown states. The lockdowns failed and destroyed people. How could lockdowns directly kill people? Well, this is United States data from 2020. Half of 650,000 U.S. cancer patients were so afraid to go into the hospital, they skipped their chemotherapy. 40% of stroke patients and heart attack patients refused to call an ambulance. They were made to be afraid of going into a medical facility. Organ transplants from living donors were down 85% from the same period the previous year because people were afraid to get their medical care. Two-thirds of cancer screenings were skipped during the first three months of the lockdowns. About a million new U.S. cancer cases went undetected in the first year of the lockdowns. Severe child abuse cases brought to the emergency room increased by about 35%. And most childhood vaccinations were skipped, generating an impending future health disaster. Many of these people died from the lockdowns, not from the virus. Let's look at the world's results overall because people don't understand. When you look at the percent of excess deaths during the COVID pandemic overall, and you look at the OECD nations, 
the nation that did the best at the top is Sweden. Somehow the American public does not understand the facts. The painful truth is what Richard Feynman said. It does not matter who you are or how smart you are or what title you have or how many of you there are and certainly not how many papers your site has published. If your prediction is wrong, then your hypothesis is wrong, period. The lockdowns failed. I look at lockdowns and school closures as a measure of an ethical society. The risk to healthy children is extremely low from COVID. This was known in the earliest days of the pandemic, clearly known by March of 2020. This is California data in the third quarter of 2021 that showed that while 14% of cases were in children in California, 0% of COVID deaths in California were in healthy children. This is Florida data, case fatality rate, under 16, 0%, under 30, 0%. It was also known since spring of 2020, the risk of spread from children was low. That was data known from all over the world, including very sophisticated contact tracing studies from Iceland, and separate studies from more than a dozen countries, Norway, Sweden, Spain, the Netherlands, Ireland, Switzerland, France, Australia, Germany, Greece, South Korea, and the United Kingdom, no significant spread from children or while schools were open. European studies of 17 countries said, quote, open schools were not associated with accelerating community transmission, unquote. And it was known from Finland, Sweden, and other studies that K-12 teachers in open schools had the same incidence as the community. There is no data whatsoever to prove the claim that teachers somehow were higher risk during the 2020 pandemic. In fact, if I could design a position to have a job with low risk, I would want to be a K through 12 teacher. It was a complete lie to claim that teachers were high risk and, and schools had to be closed to protect teachers or that any measures had to be done in schools to protect teachers. The case for opening schools was clear by summer of 2020 because it was already known that healthy children do not have a high risk from the virus that the harms of closing in-person schools were enormous and already demonstrated by even our own CDC by summer of 2020. And of course, in my view, there's nothing more important to a civilized society than educating our children. It was also already known by summer of 2020 that online learning was a gross failure. Failing grades skyrocketed. Reading and math losses were, were massive even after just simply the first two months of school closures in spring of 2020. And of course, you don't have to be a parent to understand that the losses were beyond learning losses. When you close in-person schools, you miss out on the other uh, benefits of schools, including detecting hearing or vision impairment including the fact that poor children often get their most nutritious meal in school, including things that all of our children learn in school, conflict resolution, language and speech development, social skills, physical activity. You cannot learn these things when in-person schools are closed and you're looking at a computer to learn. And of course, we can never forget, although it's never mentioned, all of these losses from closing in-person schools are far greater for minorities and poor children. The first thing I did when I went to the White House uh, at the beginning of August 2020 was push to have the word out that schools should be opened. We put on an event at the White House with teachers, parents, 
special needs parents, and education experts on advocating the, and showing the data on why children must return to school in the fall of 2020. Yet America closed its schools almost through the entire country with some rare exceptions in 2020. In fact, approximately 15% of America's children had in-person schools in the fall of 2020. And that was greatly different from our peer nations in Europe. Our peer nations in Europe, almost all countries, almost all, with the same pandemic, knew the data, knew the safety of this illness in children, and knew the destruction of children when schools were closed. They opened the schools. The United States stood out in closing schools. What happened when we closed our schools in the fall of 2020? Well, we can look at the medical claims that were reported in the spring of 2021. During the first year, during the lockdowns of 2020, we see in teenagers all medical claims were lower than the previous year. That's because hospitals were closed to non-COVID care and because people were afraid to seek medical care. So, of course, medical claims went down for teenagers. However, mental health claims skyrocketed every month during the 2020 lockdown. Self-harm in teenagers compared to the 2019 pre-pandemic year in blue here doubled, tripled. Self-harm means putting out cigarettes in your skin or slashing your wrists. In fact, it's the number one indicator for potential suicide. This is self-harm visits to doctors, not a survey, but actual medical claims made in teenagers skyrocketed during the lockdown. Psychiatric and Ill illness in college-age students skyrocketed during the lockdown. Anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder. This is not from the virus. This is from the lockdowns. The isolation of young people is extraordinarily destructive. Drug abuse, substance abuse disorders in teenagers skyrocketed during the lockdown. Now we have data from 2022 documenting the largest score declines in the history of assessment in math in young people during the lockdowns, from the lockdowns. It's critical to understand that the lockdowns didn't hurt everyone equally. Generally speaking, they spared the affluent families, but they really uh, severely hurt low-income families. This is the effect of COVID on educational progress by income group. And we notice that the lower the income group of the family, the more profound the loss uh, in educational progress and the more protracted that loss. This is the unemployment impact by wage quartile. The lower the wage quartile, the more severe the drop in jobs. I thought we were a society that cared about poor people. I thought we were a society that cared about our children. This was a massive, unethical shift of burden, harming low-income families and children and sparing the affluent. The lockdowns especially harmed low-income and poor kids. This is a review of what happened during the lockdowns sponsored by the World Bank, UNESCO, UNICEF, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. These are the quotes. Learning losses have been especially large in the regions where schools were closed the longest. This learning loss disproportionately affected students from disadvantaged backgrounds and was concentrated among poor students throughout the world, including the United States. And it threatens to undermine the future of today's children. The lockdowns are appropriately called a luxury of the rich, the elite class that instituted the lockdowns to save themselves and shifted the burden of illness in an unprecedented, unethical way to harm low-income and poor kids. 
There are many, many statistics that show that America heinously harmed its children. And I won't go through all these statistics, but just to say the top line alone, more than 300,000 United States child abuse cases went unreported just in the spring 2020 school closures because the schools are the number one agency where child abuse is noticed. The list goes on and on. Mandela said there can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. America failed heinously. Let's look at another measure of an ethical society, COVID vaccines in children. We know from the earliest days of the vaccine, after six to eight months of vaccine availability, from the study out, studies outside the United States, specifically in Israel, that people who have recovered from COVID have better immunological protection than people who were vaccinated against COVID. That's the data, better protection against symptomatic infection, against any infection, symptomatic or not, and against a serious illness, better protection after having recovered from COVID than from the vaccine if you never had COVID. And in fact, if you've recovered from COVID in the data of Israel, your protection against symptomatic infection and against any infection after recovery from COVID but unvaccinated is equal to after recovery from COVID and then vaccinated. This is basic biology one of the many things that was denied and is still denied today in many uh, parts of the world, including the United States. After that initial phase of the uh, virus, the virus mutated. This is what happens, as expected, uh, in a pandemic where the virus changes, it still spreads and is contagious, but it has far less lethal forms. And we call these variants uh, of uh, late 2021 and 2022 Omicron variants. This is data on the vaccine effectiveness against the variants that were present uh, in late 2021 and 2022 uh, in Denmark. And we see that the, on the slide at the bottom, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccines were tested on protecting against infection with Omicron and Delta variants. And we see that after two months, the protection against infection of these vaccines was between four and 9.8%. They wouldn't have been approved. That's ineffective. After two months, no significant protection against being infected and therefore against spreading. This is data on the vaccine efficacy and protection in children in New York, published February 28, 2022. And we see at the bottom of the slide that in five to 11 year olds, as well as 12 to 17 year olds, after 30 days, there is essentially zero uh, protection in young children. After 30 days. What was the response to countries given that healthy children have extremely low risk from COVID to begin with, and the vaccines are, are uh, not even efficacious to protect against infection after 30 to 60 days. Well, the United Kingdom's advisory committee said the margin of benefit based on a health perspective is too small to support advising universal vaccination of otherwise healthy 12 to 15 year olds. In Finland, People under 16 who are not in a high-risk group will not be vaccinated. In Norway, for children who are offered the vaccine but have not yet reached the age of consent, parents must consent. Vaccination is voluntary. In Denmark, from July 1, 2022, it will no longer be possible for children and young people under 18 to get the vaccine. What about in the United States? 
In an FDA advisory meeting on vaccine approval in children, October 2021, Eric Rubin, editor-in-chief of the New England Journal, said, quote, but we're never going to learn about how safe the vaccine is unless we start giving it. That's just the way it goes. I never thought I'd live in a country that that would be even said publicly. It's worse than that. In the United States, COVID vaccines have been tested in healthy infants. Thursday, April 28th, Moderna filed for authorization of its vaccine in children six months to six years of age, requesting emergency use authorization. Emergency use authorization in late spring 2022 in healthy children who don't have a significant risk for serious illness from this virus to begin with, and there was no public health emergency for them. Yet, emergency use authorization was requested and granted. How was effectiveness of this vaccine in healthy children assessed? This is from their FDA document. It was based on a comparison of immune responses. That's a blood test. That's unusual. That's not a typical endpoint for a clinical trial. Why wouldn't they use death or serious illness? Because no one in the trial, including the placebo group, no children had hospitalization requiring serious illness or death. What about simply the clinical data? Why didn't they use that? Because when you look at their data, which is here on the screen, the percent effectiveness for the vaccine in preventing infection in children in their trial was between 31 and 50% after only six weeks. That's not good enough to get approved. So they used a blood test of antibody level. Let's look at the FDA's definition of emergency use authorization, which was granted in these healthy children for these experimental drugs for which these children have no significant risk for serious illness. The FDA requires that the disease itself must cause a serious or life-threatening lethal illness. That's simply not true in healthy children. EUA was granted. That leads me to say that the U.S. public health ethics have frankly disappeared. This is a quote. If a school is implementing a testing strategy, testing should be offered on a voluntary basis. It is unethical and illegal to test someone who does not want to be tested. That was in the pre-vaccine era of 2020. In fact, that was said and published by the CDC of the United States, October 13th, 2020. Illegal and unethical to require testing of students. Yet that was done at thousands of universities and colleges across this country for the next year, and in fact, for the next two and a half years. Why do I say health ethics have disappeared? Because it's actually literally true. That statement was removed from the CDC website and is nowhere to be found. What was different this time in this pandemic? Well, one difference was this was the first pandemic we had where we had the era of social media. And social media rapidly and widely amplified false information perpetrated by government public health officials and academics who were grossly incompetent, as well as inflame the public. There's something interesting about America's media specifically. America's media stands out as being uniquely biased about COVID. This is a study from National Bureau of Economic Research at the end of 2020, quantifying negative versus positive COVID stories in the U.S. media versus the non-U.S. English-speaking media. We see on the left, the pie chart showed that 
In the U.S., 91% of all COVID stories were quantified as negative. Yet outside the U.S., only 54% were quantified as negative. Same pandemic, same with schools. U.S. media, 90% of, of stories were quantified as negative, whereas in English-speaking media outside the U.S., just slightly over half. America's media was also worse than biased. It was simply censoring. YouTube bragged, Facebook boasted that they were taking down uh, policy advice or information that countered what was being said to the public by the public health leadership. This is not a free society when the information is not available to the public. Academic journals engage in intimidation and in fact, frankly, block the scientific process to levels that were unprecedented in the United States. This was a letter published in one of the best journals in the world at the time, Lancet, in February 2020, where a group of very uh, uh, famous virologists wrote in a letter claiming that anyone who said that the virus did not have a natural origin in February 2020 were engaging in conspiracy theories. There's only one purpose of writing that, and that's to intimidate people and blocking the free exchange of information that is necessary to derive scientific truth. In February 2020, it was a lie to claim that it was known that COVID was a natural origin. In fact, it's still not known today. Mackey wrote, quote, of all the offspring of time, error is the most ancient and is so old and familiar an acquaintance that truth, when discovered, comes upon most of us like an intruder and meets the intruder's welcome. How was truth welcomed by our universities in the United States? Their response was censorship. And what do we mean by censorship on a campus? It does not mean overt, necessarily being fired from your position. There are more nuanced ways to censor people on a university campus. For instance, you could be suspended without pay to put a distance between you and the institution, as was said to me. You can be formally censured by the faculty senate. You could be directed by your own employer to stop writing X. You can be directed by your own employer to write a public apology for X. Your colleagues can be directed to stop writing defenses of you. You can undergo public defamation by other faculty members using their privileged titles to somehow legitimize their false claims. Your visibility can be reduced by your employer. And of course, you can have suppression of other things you wrote reviewing your uh, experience like books, for instance. These are all forms of censorship and intimidation, and they're very effective. And I know they're effective because I had hundreds of scientists and even colleagues at my own university at Stanford tell me personally that they were in agreement with everything I said, but they were afraid to speak up. And not just afraid for their positions. They were afraid to speak up. Many of them explicitly said for themselves and their families, that's the state of our country right now. This has to be changed. The university's response to truth can be called cancel culture. And cancel culture in a university, for people uh, in universities who are granted very privileged positions of almost reverence by American society and assumed expertise, it relies on the university brand. And so therefore, when they defame people, they don't use data or evidence. Instead, they use ad hominem attacks using the university brand, like the letter from Stanford School of Medicine that was absent of data, but full of ad hominem attacks 
that were completely wrong. Or like internal email using university titles, like former dean of the medical school or academic secretary to the university, to somehow legitimize by their titles their grossly incorrect and defamatory claims. Academic science has been exposed as political. Whether we knew it or not in the past, we saw it overtly, particularly at Stanford University, where they engaged in political targeting. There were three of us in the medical school who had been in medical school faculty positions, Johnny Anides, myself, and Jay Bhattacharya, all of whom were medical scientists at Stanford, and all of us said the exact same things about who's at risk, about the extremely low risk to healthy children, about the importance of immunity in, in acquired infection, about the lack of efficacy of masks in protecting people, about the fact that schools must be open for in-person, that lockdowns were very harmful and ineffective, and that targeted protection was the appropriate way to go to minimize the damage. Yet only one of us was issued a formal censure by Stanford faculty. We don't have to wonder why. I don't think it's a stretch to say that this was due to standing next to a president that Stanford faculty members don't approve of. Here's the evidence of that. While California voted in the Biden-Trump election, two to one Biden, at Stanford and Stanford zip code, 95% of people voted for Biden and 3.5% voted for Donald Trump. There's no mystery here. Even America's media recognized political targeting on campus. Wall Street Journal editorial board, September 2020, the public can be forgiven for wondering if Dr. Atlas's appointment as a White House coronavirus advisor last month has made him a political target. A group of Stanford faculty published an open letter sliming their former colleague last week, and his video came down two days later. Quote, Atlas has been singled out for professional erasure because he had the temerity to join President Trump's coronavirus task force and advocate rational measures for safely opening the economy. National Review. There's a sinful legacy of the academic and public health leadership in the United States. And that's most sinful legacy of all is the damage to our younger generation. In surveys, people in college age groups said 50% of them said they were nervous about all social interaction. There are long-term damages to the younger generation that are a public health crisis now from the lockdown, not from the virus. College-age students gained weight during the lockdown. How much? 52% had an unwanted weight gain, and that weight gain averaged 28 pounds. That's an obesity crisis from the isolation, from the lockdowns, not from the virus. There is now a massive loss of trust in public health, and it is extremely politicized. When asked if you support K-12 in-person schools and you divide the responses in the United States by political party, there is a massive difference. 94% of Republican-identified respondents agree with opening schools, whereas only 60% of Democrat responders agree. Public health trust in advice should not be political. That's a reflection of the people giving the advice, in my view. Trust in science is now politicized. For decades, there was no significant difference, Democrat or Republican, in the answer to the question, do you have a great deal of confidence in science? Yet, now during this pandemic, there is a massive difference in trust in science on the base of political party. That's a serious problem in a free society. 
where we need to trust objective fields like science and expertise to deal with crises to come. Americans expressed seemingly a desire for more freedom by virtue of data on relocation. When we look at what happened internal migration of Americans during the pandemic, there was a significant shift towards states that were governed by Republicans and, generally speaking, those, uh, those counties on a county-by-county basis were in states with less stringent lockdown policies. That implies a move to freedom. But when we look at the question, do Americans prioritize freedom? We look at how they vote. In the November 2022 governor elections, we look at the states that were the 10 worst performing states on COVID management, which were essentially the 10 most stringent states plus Washington, D.C. These were the states Michigan, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Nevada, Maryland, Illinois, California, New Mexico, New York, Washington, D.C., and New Jersey that had the most stringent lockdowns and did the worst on performance of COVID. In eight of those states, the governor was running for re-election. And in seven, the governor won. People re-elected governors who were the main people responsible for harming their children, destroying their employment, and causing massive hardship, increases in suicide, etc. Americans re-elected those people. How do we restore trust? The bottom line, first and foremost, is that individuals with integrity must rise up. What do we mean by rise up? We mean speak up, not just as is acceptable in a democracy or a free society, but as is required of people with integrity. This is one such person. In response to the Stanford Medical School letter about me, no Stanford Medical School faculty spoke up against it publicly. But Martin Kohldorf of Harvard wrote a letter saying, I'd be delighted to debate whether Atlas is right with any of the 98 signatories of the letter. Zero of the people who signed that letter agreed to debate on the evidence. Institution leaders must lead, not cower in fear. They need a spine. This is a table of the top 60 salaries of university presence in the United States. Leaders of universities in the United States make millions of dollars. Here are the 60. That money implies responsibility, requires leadership. Martin Luther King said, there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. There are very few public elected officials who showed leadership. One is Governor Ron DeSantis. Governor DeSantis held a roundtable in end of February, beginning of March 2021, where he asked me, Martin Kuldorf, Jay Bhattacharya, and Sunetra Gupta to discuss and hold a Q&A about the pandemic. This is March 2021. We held the, the uh, discussion with Governor DeSantis, and then YouTube pulled it down as disinformation. Governor DeSantis immediately called me up and said, Instead of complaining, we're doing another panel on the censorship itself. And so he invited, in April, me, Jay Bhattacharya, and Martin Kaldorf 
to have another discussion about the censorship. This is very critical. You don't back down, you never give up, or the country's finished. Another important part of restoring trust is to encourage more outside experts to help. We cannot have bureaucrats who have been in positions like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks for decades who are completely removed from true science and critical thinking and whose jobs depend on their performance in the media. We need people who are outsiders like myself who came in and like those who I brought in, Joe Ladapa of UCLA, Cody Meisner of Tufts, Martin Kolder of Harvard, Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford. We came in to answer the president's questions. That's the job. We're supposed to be there, give information, people doing the research and critically thinking about the data, even though, even internally in the White House, I was told that this meeting shouldn't occur. And when we started, I was told it would be five minutes. The president asked us questions for 45 minutes. That's the role of an advisor, give advice. We need to hold universities accountable in the United States. There are more than a dozen universities in the United States that get more than $500 million per year from the NIH alone. That kind of massive centralization of funding creates a dependence by the university on the people that control the funding. We need to decentralize the control of the money in science and in research, or we will never be able to have a free dialogue where academic scientists feel free to counter or say things that were not in line with the people at the head of the NIH. We need to hold the press and others accountable for their defamatory statements. There's a very harmful precedent set by New York Times versus Sullivan case of 1964, where a really un, un, uh, unsurmountable bar must be raised that it must be proven statements are made with actual malice to harm a public figure. This needs to be challenged, and I think it will be. We also need to restore ethical principles in public health. Some of the most basic ethical constructs of public health guidance were not followed. We shifted the burden of an illness to poor people. There was a bizarre focus on stopping a single infection at all costs, even though it was killing people and stopping medical care for very serious illnesses like cancer and organ failure. We have just articulated the ethical principles of public health guidance in our Academy for Science and Freedom. We need to reform science to prioritize the public good. So under the guidance of Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, three of us, myself, Martin Kaldorf, and Jay Bhattacharya, have formed the Academy for Science and Freedom to educate the American people about the free exchange of scientific ideas and the, restore the proper relationship between freedom and science in the pursuit of truth. I've also formed a new institute with my colleague Josh Rao of Stanford School of Business that is an international institute to restore and preserve personal and economic freedom as well as the free exchange of ideas and counter the harmful policy guidance of other international institutions. We must remember the true legacy here. Their legacy, the people that were in charge and were listened to, is history's biggest public health fiasco because their, their guidance resulted in avoidable death in society's most vulnerable massive destruction of low-income families, ongoing enormous health damages to our children, and ultimately a severe loss of trust in public health and science. Why must we insist their errors be publicly exposed? 
Well, ethical societies demand truth. The first step in restoring trust is an admission of error and a public apology. And frankly, only public accountability of these people will prevent the repetition of this heinous destruction by people in power. Lastly, Chesterton said, right is right, even if nobody does it, wrong is wrong, even if everybody is wrong about it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's special presentation of Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to follow our show, please subscribe on YouTube as well as on Spotify, Apple, Google, and anywhere else that you're listening to podcasts right now. I'll see you next time.